Good morning again. We are in the midst of going through a series um, based loosely on the New City Catechism, which is a catechism written by Tim Keller and the folks out at Redeemer Church in Manhattan. And it's basically just pulling together all of the best bits of a variety of different catechisms, which are just teaching tools. So the goal for us is to just delve more deeply into kind of some key aspects of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And this morning, we get to baptism. And if you've been around Sanctuary for any length of time, you know that baptism is one of my favorite things. So I had nothing to do with laying out this series. Well, that's not really true. I did. But Mark was the one that assigned the weeks. And somehow, he got sick on the Holy Spirit week, which was one of my other favorite things to talk about. And I got to come and do that one. And now this morning, I get to speak on baptism, which is one of my favorite things to be a part of in the church. So I'm excited for the chance to explore this morning baptism. So the question out of the New City Catechism, there are two different questions we're going to look at. The first one this morning is, what is a sacrament? And here is the words from the catechism. It says, the sacraments, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper, are given by God and instituted by Christ as visible signs and seals that we are bound together as a community of faith, By his death and resurrection, by our use of the sacraments, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. Now, the downside of a catechism is they pack so much into a few sentences. So I just want to kind of go back over that a little bit. So in the Reformed tradition, we believe that there are only two sacraments. If you grew up Catholic, there are more sacraments in the Catholic faith Um, In the Christian Reformed Church, we view baptism and the Lord's Supper as the two sacraments. So what makes a sacrament a sacrament? Well, we think that the sacraments are the things that were given to us by God and then were commanded for us to do by Jesus Christ himself. And so if you read through the Gospels, you find places where Jesus commands us to both of these. The practice of the Lord's Supper, we see that um, at the Last Supper that we celebrate every week. Uh, And then also Jesus commands us to go into the world, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of Jesus. And so we view these two things as important. Well, why are they important? Partly because Jesus told us to do them. But more than that, um, in our world, we get very absorbed in the physical stuff, right? We live in a very tangible world with a lot of uh, input that's coming at us all of the time. Uh, and we can just live life at that level, at that physical uh, level of what we can see and hear and smell. And so our spiritual life, I think, can sometimes be neglected. We don't have as many obvious ways to enter into that part of our life, or that's not encouraged kind of in the world around us. Well, the sacraments are a beautiful, tangible way um, for us to experience the truths of our faith. Right? We come to the Lord's table and we get to break off a piece of bread. We get to dip it in the juice. We get to taste that. We get to feel it. We get to see it. And similarly with baptism, we have the water that maybe you were immersed and so you, your whole body experiences the water. Or if you're a child um, here with your parent bringing you, they get a nice dousing of it poured over their head. There's something tangible in the sacraments. They are signs, physical signs of an invisible reality the grace, and the love of God. They also are called seals. 
So what we believe is that by our use of the sacraments, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the truths of the gospel to us. Now, how does that happen? I don't know. But we believe that the Holy Spirit is present in a powerful and unique way when we celebrate the sacraments. And for that reason alone, we experience the grace of God because the Spirit is here. There's signs and there's seals. The author J.I. Packer says this, which I found helpful. As the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible, so the sacraments make it visible. And God stirs up faith by both means. That was helpful to me. So, the, so baptism, the Lord's Supper are sacraments. Well, the next question um, from the catechism is, what is baptism? So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking that a little bit. So the catechism says that baptism is the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it signifies and seals a whole lot of things that we're going to look at, but particularly our adoption into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and our commitment to belong to the Lord and to his church. Well, there are a number of different ways that we can explore baptism. And two years ago, during the season of Lent, we did a whole series on baptism, um, looking at it through the lens of all of the ways that we are united with Christ in our baptism. And so if you haven't had enough this morning of baptism, you can go home, you can look up the 2016 Lenten series on baptism, you can get a whole other perspective on it, how we are united with Christ in baptism. But this morning, uh, we are going to look at it through the lens of what does the water of baptism signify? And I love this. So um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to take some time looking at six different things that the water signifies. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are grateful for your presence with us, not only here, but as we got up this morning, as we brushed our teeth. Thank you for your presence with us. Lord, as we reflect on baptism, one of these sacraments that you have given us to help us understand you and our relationship to you more fully, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear from you. May we be renewed in our awareness of your deep love and grace for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I was laughing this morning with Mark. When I, um, in order to become ordained in the Christian Reformed Church, I had to take some classes at Calvin. And I then had to go back to Calvin uh, and go through a number of different things, one of which was an examination by the faculty of Calvin, which when I was told that I was meeting with the professors, it was phrased that way. Oh, you're going to have a meeting with the professors. And I'm like, great, you have coffee, right? No, it was an exam, which I did not realize until the night I flew in on the plane before my exam with like half of the panel of Calvin's faculty. A little bit overwhelming. And I had done nothing to prepare at all. And uh, the theology professor asked me to walk her through um, the theology of water from kind of Genesis to Revelation. Well, they got a big nothing from me because that was not something that I had taken time reflecting on or writing papers on in seminary. At that point, I had not really given a great deal of thought to the way that water is depicted in scripture. Well, I'll tell you what, 
that question stuck with me. And you're going to hear a theology of water this morning, starting in Genesis. Uh, And it's beautiful. And I'm so glad that I had that prompt all of those years ago to spend some time reflecting. So in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, in ancient Israel, the understanding of water kind of was very much influenced by um, the cultures around them. And there was a Canaanite myth at that time that told the story of creation. And the story that was told was of these primordial gods having a great battle. And the winner god slayed the chaos dragon, right? Cut the chaos dragon in half, pushed one half of the chaos dragon to the sky and created sky, the other half of the chaos dragon to the earth and created water. And humanity and everything that exists then exists within, between the chaos of the heavens and the chaos of the waters. Water in that ancient time held this understanding of chaos, right? It was the unknown, the great unknown, the Leviathan, the great sea creature lived in the water. So water was feared. Well, then in Genesis 6, you have Noah's Ark, right? Great story that we all love to tell of our kids, and we decorate their nurseries with the animals going two by two. But the story of Noah's Ark is the story of God's judgment on the great pervasive sin that had grown from the time of Adam and Eve through generations to the point where all of the earth was corrupted by humanity's sin. And God uses that chaos water. He unleashes it from its from its place in the heavens and on the earth. And that water, again, covers all of creation. God's judgment is let out upon humanity as he releases the chaos of the water to cover the earth. So water in Genesis 6 comes to be understood as a symbol of God's judgment on humanity's sin. That's not something we talk about a lot when we bring a little baby to be baptized. But it's present there. As we baptize a child, as we baptize an adult, that water represents God's judgment on sin. And as we enter into the water, our sins are put to death, just as surely as the early flood put to death the sin of our early ancestors. But we have to remember the end of the Noah's Ark story, right? At the end of the story, there is a rainbow that God places in the sky. And he says, I will not flood the earth again. Never again will I use water to obliterate life. And God keeps that promise. And he keeps that promise by, for the rest of eternity, taking the judgment for our sin upon himself, right? On the cross, Jesus Christ takes all of that judgment upon himself so that God does not have to unleash that judgment upon humanity any longer. And this brings us to the next image that's represented by water. So baptism remembers Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. In Romans 6, Paul says that we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, we most of the time do baptism by sprinkling here. 
which I really feel like is a shame because you lose something um, of the imagery of the dying uh, when you sprinkle a child. But if you picture, um, how many of you have witnessed a baptism by immersion or were baptized by immersion? Yeah, so there's something powerful when you see that person going down into the water, down into the ground, being laid to rest as a body in the grave, dying to sin, and then being raised back out of water as Christ raised from the dead to newness of life. In baptism, we reenact our our dying to sin and our being raised to new life again in Christ Jesus. For that reason alone, I wish that we had a dunk tank because I love the imagery of, of dying to sin and being raised to new life. We have a slide. Is there a slide that has kind of the bullet points here? There you go. So third, baptism remembered God's faithful provision for his people. Water is necessary for life. And here in the great Pacific Northwest, we take water for granted, right? We're surrounded by it. It rains down from the heavens. It creeps up through your crawl space. It is everywhere. But imagine that you lived in the desert where water is scarce. Imagine that you are one of those families in many places around the world that has to walk for six hours a day with jugs to fill them, to bring them back so that your, water, your family can survive. Water is necessary for life. And the people of Israel in the, in the wilderness, um, they experienced that longing, that longing for water. And as they were led out of Egypt and into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they began to experience the lack of water and they began to panic. And they cried out to the Lord. And, and finally, God allows Moses to strike a, wa- a rock and to bring forth water. And so in baptism, the water represents this abundance, this lavish provision that we receive in and through Jesus Christ in our lives. That in Christ, God provides everything that we need. Everything that we need. Fourth, baptism remembers the exodus, when God rescued his people from slavery. And this is another image that I love to bring to mind as we, as we picture baptism. The story of God's people. They had grown into a great nation enslaved in Egypt. For hundreds of years, they had been slaves building bricks uh, out of mud and straw to build the great pyramids of the Egyptian pharaoh. And then the Lord finally hears them crying out to him, and he raises up a leader from amongst those people, Moses. And he says, Moses, let my people go. I'm going to use you. You are going to be my voice. You're going to go to Pharaoh. And through you, I'm going to free my people. And then we have the great story of the Passover and then the Exodus. As Moses leads this great band of people out of Egypt with Pharaoh's armies chasing after. And what happens? They come to a great sea. They believe that they are on their way to freedom, and then suddenly they encounter a sea as far as the eye can see. Pharaoh's armies are within sight behind. Oh, we are lost. But then what happens? God has Moses raise his hands, and a great wind begins to blow. He makes darkness fall over the Egyptian army behind, 
And through the course of the night, with Moses raises his hands and the wind blows, the waters part. Have you ever seen the animated version of this? Oh, my favorite part. The waters part and the people begin to walk through on dry land. And in the animated one, you know, the, the light shines from behind and you see whales and all sorts of great sea creatures swimming in the water. It's just such a beautiful image. I'm sure it's not realistic at all. Um, but God leads the people through the sea to freedom, right? So in baptism, we are reminded that through Jesus' saving work, we are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free from the power of sin. It no longer has hold of us anymore through Jesus' work on the cross. And we are now children of God. We are now children of God. Well, number five, the water reminds us that we have been washed clean. If any of you have ever taken to read through the entire book um, of the Bible, you probably got pretty good through Genesis, Exodus. Um, then you hit Leviticus, Numbers, and suddenly you're in the law, right? And you're reading chapter after chapter about what sorts of sacrifices need to be done in what situation. And, and then there's all of these chapters about the purity laws, the ritual um, purity, the washing that needs to happen. If you touch this sort of an animal or if you have this sort of a skin disease, then you need to do this sort of cleansing. So because of the law, this entire um, ritual um, for purity grew up in Israel. And even today you can go over and uh, if you go on a tour, you will walk through what's called mikvahs. And these are ceremonial baths that were built all over Israel uh, next to streams of, of it was called living water. The water couldn't be stagnant. It had to be flowing. You can still go and you can walk down into these. This was a huge part of the culture of the early Jewish people, this, this ritual purification, this cleansing from sin. Well, this call to purity is also echoed in baptism. Only in baptism, we are reminded that what washes us clean is not observance of chapter upon chapter of religious regulation, of law. Purity is not attained by, by living well. But in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly Jesus' blood, Jesus' spirit, wash away our impurity and our sin. So as we come to the, a baptism, as we baptize a child, as we baptize an adult, uh, we, are, we are reenacting being washed clean by Christ's blood. The sixth thing that is represented in baptism, baptism is referred to as the new circumcision. Okay, so this one here is a little bit less, it, it's a little bit harder to connect to the water, but it's, also, it's a powerful image. So in the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign that set Israel apart as God's chosen people. God called Abraham, and Abraham and his wife and their family left and began heading across the wilderness um, towards the promised land, and that family began to grow and to multiply, and eventually God said, Abraham, in order to mark you as mine, in order to set your family apart 
as my chosen people, as the people of God, I want every male in your household, slave, whatever, to be circumcised. And Abraham, in obedience to God, did that. All of the males in the household were circumcised as a symbol, as a sign that they were God's family, God's chosen people. And in the book of Colossians, Paul equates baptism with circumcision. And so when we come to baptism, one of the things that we are claiming is that through Christ's blood on the cross, we have been adopted as God's kids. So as we baptize someone, we are claiming for them their place in God's family. They are now God's son, God's daughter. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this is represented and claimed in baptism. So I wanted to take a moment to reflect on why covenant baptism, why infant baptism? Infant baptism is also called covenant baptism. At Sanctuary, we practice infant baptism. And I know a lot of folks have grown up in different traditions where you're familiar with believer baptism. And so why do we choose infant baptism at Sanctuary? This is something that most of us have had to process through and and come to an understanding of at some point in our lives. For me, I had to go through that in seminary. Um, I grew up kind of in all of these different traditions as we moved around in the military. And so I didn't have a strong rooting in any one tradition. And I wasn't entirely sure what I thought of infant baptism going into seminary. But as I began exploring um, the practice of infant baptism, I grew to love it. And I believe that it represents so well um, the heart of the Reformed faith. And so just a couple of reflections on that. In the Reformed faith, we understand baptism to be not as much a sign of human decision or human faith as it is a symbol of God's action and of God's grace. All right. So in Colossians 2, Paul says that in baptism, we were circumcised. We were baptized. We were buried in baptism. We were also raised. So all of the different words here, as Paul talks about baptism, um, are passive. It's called the divine passive. As Paul talks about it, um, God is the one that is the actor in all of these different situations. It's not faith is a gift from the Lord. And so in baptism, we are claiming God's grace, God's action on our behalf. So in infant baptism, we play a high, place a high emphasis on the role of God's grace over human works in the process of salvation. The practice of infant baptism similarly emphasizes God's faithfulness, while believer baptism emphasizes human faith. And then the last thing, in infant baptism, God makes promises to the parent and the child. It's God saying to the parent, just as you are my child, this child also belongs to me. I will be faithful to this child. And I love that, that that in baptism, God is making promises to us, that he is promising us his grace, his love, his faithfulness. And that in baptizing an infant or a child, we are claiming those promises in faith for that child. I love that. So baptism, the fact that you were baptized, should be a source of hope for you. You probably don't give a great deal of thought to the fact that you were baptized. 
I hadn't definitely before I started kind of spending time reflecting on it. But Martin Luther, one of the early reformers, was a very angsty guy. Um, he often felt discouraged. He, he wavered between believing that he was saved by grace and then feeling like his life didn't reflect kind of the regenerative work of Christ. And he would go to this place of guilt. But he found his baptism as a great source of hope to the point where he, in those moments of despair, would find water and would splash water on himself and remind himself, but I am baptized, but I am baptized, and would claim again for himself all of the things promised to him in his baptism. John Calvin, one of the other reformers, um, he advised folks in his congregation who were discouraged to reflect that they are still on the way to the complete victory that God promises in baptism. That's one of the things that I love about the way that we perform baptism is that we're not claiming that we've attained perfection when we come to be baptized, but we claim that we are entering into a journey. This is the beginning of a journey that's going to be lived out every day of our lives until it reaches fulfillment when we come face to face with Christ in heaven. I wanted to end by reading this quote um, that's on a baptismal font uh, at Bethany CRC in Muskegon, Michigan. Any of you been to that church? I haven't either. I came across this um, through Calvin Seminary's webpage, but uh, I found it very beautiful. And so what we're going to do from here is um, we're going to come to the table, but I, I spent last night painting rocks for you all. Uh, as a remembrance of your baptism, all right? I was going to engrave them. I bought a really cheap engraver, and it was completely ineffective in engraving the rocks. So you get painted rocks. Um, we're going to come to the table, and then after communion, at the end of the service, I invite you, if you would like a remembrance of your baptism, um, to come down, dip your hand in the water, uh, take a rock home with you. My son Alistair is six, and I'm often emptying rocks out of his pockets or his backpack, um, he carries them around perpetually. And so it's not weird at all to carry a rock around in your pocket, all right? <laughs> so if it would be helpful for you um, to take a rock as a reminder, there's some different symbols on them. Find one that, um, that speaks to you about um, the gift of your baptism and take it home with you and, and, and keep it. Reflect on these words as you come. You are not your own. You have been marked out as belonging to God. You have been cleansed from your sin. You have been identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus. You belong to the multi-generational, multicultural family of God. Pause at the baptismal font. Feel free to touch it. Dip your fingers into the water as we remember that baptism marks the beginning of a spiritual pilgrimage toward our heavenly destination. What a lovely invitation. And you are invited at the end of the service to come and uh, remember your baptism. Well, we're going to come to the table now. We're going to celebrate our second sacrament together this morning. And so as we prepare to come, um, let's take a moment to pray together. Lord, I'm so grateful that you understand us. That as a God who also became human and walked amongst us, that you understand uh, how difficult it can be to, um, to settle down into our spirit. We need reminders, Lord. We, we need physical things that we can touch and see and taste. So Lord, we thank you for baptism. 
We thank you for all of the promises, your grace, your love, that we are set free from sin. Gosh, I need to be reminded of that five times a day. Thank you for these reminders, for these signs. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would seal these truths to us again today. Protect us from guilt. Set us free. Lord, we also thank you for the gift of the table. And as we prepare to come this morning, we remember Christ's profound sacrifice made out of deep love for us that you chose to take our sin upon yourself so that we could be in relationship with you. What a gift. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for all of the ways that you provide for us. We are grateful. Amen. As I have mentioned, uh, my family is sick, so I am not going to be touching the elements today. Um, We have two elders, Peter and Katie, who are going to serve, so you can rest assured that I'm not spreading anything here. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant, sealed by my blood, poured out for you because I love you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember and we claim again all of the truths that are promised us at the table in baptism. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is also gluten-free bread so that all may come.